I'm Alex. And I'm Matt, and welcome back to our show, Sources and Methods, also online at sourcesandmethods.com. Our second guest for the program is Aaron Cunningham, the Egypt-based reporter for the Washington Post, who previously reported for Global Post and the Christian Science Monitor. We'll also dive deep on what information she's consuming and what she does with that information. This session and more can be downloaded at our website, sourcesandmethods.com. So first of all, I guess thank you very much for everyone who listened to the first episode. Absolutely. I think we had over 150 people download and subscribe to the show, which uh, wasn't uh, wasn't expecting at all. <laughs> I suspect it's all of Anand's uh, deep um, fan base that came and listened. And congratulations, I guess, to him uh, for his nomination for a National Book Award, or at least he's on the long list or the short list or some kind of list for the National Book Award. Yeah, I think the long list, yeah. It's not that long. It's only five five books, I think. Yeah, it's fantastic in any event. Matt, what have you been up to this past? Um, I have not been reading or really doing much productive. I've been traveling and uh, falling victim to the cult of busyness that, that everybody talks about. You know, I'm, I'm essentially far too busy to, to do anything, um, so I've been working to... Uh, play that down. No, I'm I'm back in Boston right now after uh, a bit in southern Turkey. I'll be back there uh, soon. Probably the most interesting thing was that yesterday I was uh, had the opportunity to speak on a foreign policy panel discussion with a, a former U.S. ambassador yesterday at, at uh, Boston University, and it was it's really interesting to understand uh, how Americans, you know, how the American side of things is, is learning about what's happening in the world or, or reacting. Um, to it and I love these chats because I get to play the insurgent card of just like yeah that all sounds nice in theory and, and here's what it looks like on the ground um, uh, in that the, scenario you're the insurgent yeah yeah exactly um, we the conversation was remarkably top down and I just kind of kept kind of it's, it's a very strong position it's also not fair really I just get to say that that all sounds really nice and doesn't work um, but but it was, it was a great chat and what I like, though, is, is people who can combine the uh, on-the-ground perspective with the, with the kind of more uh, macro-level view, and, and that's why I'm particularly interested to uh, pick Aaron's brain about that um, with her work at, as the Washington Post and, and other newspapers um, before that. Getting right into the show here, uh, as always, this show examines three things, sources of information, essentially where, where does this information come from that our, that our guests are uh, finding or, or using what are the methods essentially what what tools do they use to to track down this information is it apps or Twitter or Facebook or, or the like and far far and away most importantly what are they doing with this this information how do they process this information and uh, and how do they use it and we'll be asking Aaron all this and more right now so Aaron welcome to uh, the show thank you very much happy to be here coming all the way from Cairo. Um, yeah, no, it was, it's, uh, it's great to have you here. And, um, uh, you know, I kind of feel um, over the past past few days while preparing for the show, I've been reading everything that you've ever written that I could find uh, online. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of feel that, um, well, I don't, don't know whether it felt like this to you, but that, that, you know, you spent a, quite a few years working for newspapers, online news outlets uh, and the like. Um, and 
it kind of feels that you you worked a really long time before you got um got kind of uh, recognition and uh well known for what you were doing and i know you originally started off in um in kind of the middle east that kind of area um then uh then eventually you, you ended up in afghanistan mm-hmm. um almost at the wrong time just as the kind of arab spring <laughs> was kicking off um and then uh, we're kind of there for the initial years, and then you know you're back mm. there now, and you're back in back in Egypt, um, and you're kind of on the top mm-hmm. of the pile working for the Washington Post. Um, uh, I mean, do, do 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 you have that sense as well that you know it took it took took a while for you to 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 reach where you are, or or were you very happy with where you were while while you were going along? Yeah, actually, it felt, you know, it felt okay. I felt like I was paying my dues, especially, I mean, considering there are very few foreign correspondent jobs. And I started, you know, as they were all being sort of scaled down and all the bureaus were being um, cut back. So what I really wanted to focus on was just was just doing the work and and and, you know, writing and reporting and just writing the stories and and developing my beat whether it was in you know the middle east or afghanistan um and and working for you know places like global post and the national really uh, you know allowed me to do that and i never you know for a while i was very self-conscious and i didn't think that i had uh, enough experience to pitch to some of the the bigger places um and and so i didn't i just really put in the work and i loved what i was doing so i loved you know, being out there, and and as long as I could learn and speak to people, um, and then turn that into you know a piece of writing that you know people may or may not end up reading, that felt good. Um, and and so yeah, now I'm very happy where I am now. But um, and it did feel like a bit of a slog, but it wasn't. You know, I wasn't unhappy about it certainly. Yeah, I mean that 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 certainly comes comes across. And um, if uh, listeners want to um, take a look at some of the things that Erin uh, has written uh, over the years, I've made a selection of um, eight or nine articles um, going back to two thousand nine uh, that I think you know people can kind of uh, get a start with of yours. And you de- you definitely get get the sense that um, you know the work that you were doing, you were interested in the story. It wasn't just purely a vehicle for you know your own ego to talk <laughs> about yourself. You know you're 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 writing about you know um, and, and maybe maybe we can talk about this. Um, uh, more later, but uh, the articles when you're in Gaza, for example, uh, I really get the sense that you mm-hmm. kind of come alive there, and and you know, mm-hmm. I get 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 the feeling that that you had a kind of real personal attachment to this place, and you really wanted to to tell the stories um, that that you were hearing as you were kind of learning about uh, about this as, as you were there. Absolutely. Um... Gaza was the first place where I started. I felt like I started doing real reporting. Um, I had gone there uh, the last few days of Operation Cast Lead, which took place in 2008 and 2009. So I witnessed some of that um, operation, and you know, it really sort of stuck with me. Um, you know, the intensity of that and and what the people were going through. And so I decided to move there in 2009. And and yeah, it was because I I thought it was an extraordinary place. Um, And I really 
did enjoy my time there and telling the story and I, I certainly was you know attached to it in that sense um, and I think that helped that definitely helped you know with the stories as well when um, you know you want to tell stories because you you care about you know um, the populations and and the people that you are writing about and not necessarily because you want to be on on the big story of of you know the day or whatever so so yeah definitely you um you just mentioned essentially why why you tell the stories is that this kind of connection with the 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 population that that you're with but i was wondering if we could actually back up and and jump right back to the start Mm -hmm. um how did how did you get into journalism originally oh no (laughs) 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 well i guess you know i sort of I was working um I was working in the West Bank and I was working for an NGO and um I had um a, an acquaintance who worked at the Interpress service I'm not sure if you're familiar with that so, Sure. Yeah. So and mm-hmm. and she, you know, offered to have me write a couple of things um and and I really liked it. You know, I really um I found that I was, you know, I was okay at it. It really felt, you know, made me feel better than, than, you know, the work at the NGO where you don't, you know, I don't know, it felt a little bit more mundane. And so, um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I decided that, um, this was right, you know, right after college and I had worked for my university newspaper as well, but then I decided, okay, this is what I, uh, this is what I want to do and I'm going to try and do it. And, and um, so, so you you actually wrote for your college newspaper. Uh, so is that kind of where you got your start in in writing? Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. You know, I've always you know I, I've always been a writer, and I when I was younger, I used to you know write short stories and enter into writing contests and stuff like that. But but yeah, at the college newspaper is really where I sort of you know um, got more into the you know journalist the newspaper style writing and all, and all of that. What was your favorite story from your from your college times? Did you did you like break something against you know university officials making really bad decisions or, uh... you know, <laughs> you know actually I was the <laughs> I oh, was okay. an editor so um, I was mo- I was mostly editing people's people's stuff okay. but um, I went to a very very small my university was very small there were about nine hundred students. So they're very exclusive and selective. <laughs> yeah, there weren't too many scandals to break. Um, so, so yeah. And then, as we, you know, flash forward from from a college newspaper writing and then reporting on on the Middle East. Um, How do you end up there? <laughs> exactly. Got it. <laughs> oh no! What are you guys doing to me? Um, so, <laughs> think of it as free therapy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I don't know. I mean, this might sound kind of um, kind of corny, but you know, I I remember I I remember very well watching um, Peter Arnett from CNN during the first Gulf War on television, and um, he was you know first he was in Amman and then he was in Baghdad, and I remember thinking you know I was so fascinated by that and and where he was and re- what you know the Middle East was, and it always just sort of you know, was there with me. And, um, of course, after 9-11, um, all of these things came, you know, came to the forefront. People were interested in that part of the world again. And so when, um, when I went to school and I went to school in Paris, um, 
the vast uh, the vast majority of my friends were from the Middle East, and so yeah, it was very it was very interesting. And so I just ended up um, I ended up studying in Cairo um, for a summer and and absolutely adored it. And um, then got a job uh, after college in in the West Bank. Um, and as- aside from my brief time in in Afghanistan, I haven't left. And when during that time did you um, start engaging with, you know, learning Arabic, for example? Well, I started I started when I was in Paris um, and that was back in 2005. And um, then I studied again um, in 2006 when I came to Cairo. I did a summer of Arabic um, and then, you know, would take you know private private lessons and um, a lot of what I learned actually I learned in Gaza um, when when I was living there so and was that just simply to be able to work there or is that because you really had a feeling that you were going to end up being here for a long time so you know what was because you know it's 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 you know there are a lot of journalists and reporters who work uh in and around the middle east very few bother to to kind of learn learn to to speak arabic yeah no um i you know i assumed that i that i would be here for a long time and that any you know i i feel like in any country you should have a sort of base um base vocabulary that you work with in order to you know i mean you're in you're in these people's countries, so it's exactly. it's definitely necessary. And I actually, when I first moved to Gaza, I lived with a family, um, and nobody spoke English, and so that you know that helped. <laughs> that helped a lot. Um, yeah. And yeah, it really it sort of you know it's slow it slowed down a bit. I've become you know a lot more um, busy, and so my you know keeping up with uh, with some of the lessons has been a bit difficult um, and. Arabic grammar, you know, you can always get, you can only get so far <laughs> sometimes <laughs> before you just, you know. <laughs> but I mean, do, do, do you think it's given you, given you uh, an, an advantage over, over other people or do you, do, do you not see it makes, makes much difference in fact, in terms of your day-to-day work? Well, I think it helps, it helps a little bit and I'm certainly not fluent, um, not by a long shot. So, you know, um, but but there are things that I that I understand, um, you know, in the interviews that might get by someone else who doesn't um, who doesn't speak Arabic, and you can catch those things. And whether or not it's something important, a bit of information that you know the um, a translator might not have translated for you, or whether you can catch it and make a joke with you know your subject, and that helps ease things along. Um, then yeah, it's definitely I would say it's definitely at an advantage. Given your job as as the Washington Post, you know, correspondent out, out of Egypt, and I guess covering a whole lot of the the Middle East as well, um, you know, part of your job is is to essentially explain uh, the Middle East to to an American, and actually just thinking about how many people read the Washington Post, really, really the mm-hmm. the English speaking world. Mm-hmm. Um, h- how have you essentially crafted your your tone? Well, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, yeah. <laughs> First off, is it safe to say that that what I just said is actually true? I mean, and do you feel like it's your job to essentially explain um, what's happening in the Middle East to to an American audience? I mean, first and foremost, or or is it really something else? No, no, I do think that that's certainly that's certainly part of the job. Um, I sort of assume that you know the core the core readership. Um, 
uh, is likely people in Washington or policymakers or academics who, you know, mm-hmm. will um, consistently read the newspaper and that, you know, they're the ones that will be, you know, constantly reading the stories. Um, but that being said, of course, yeah, um, you know, we uh, are explaining this you know, a crazy time in the Middle East to an American audience. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's, I think it's really important. And I don't know if I've been successful in this or if I will be successful in this writing, you know, further stories um, to portray the Middle East as, you know, a region with, uh, that's populated by people ordinary people who are not, you know, um, not everyone, uh, is ISIS. Not everyone, you know, what? (laughs) Yeah. So you say, uh, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Just in case you guys weren't aware of that. Um, but it's, but it's hard, you know, when you go back to the, to the U S and, you know, my, some of my other wise, very smart friends or, or family members will, you know, dismiss the region. Oh, they're just crazy over there and it's never going to get fixed and, you know, things like this. So, so I, I just think it's important to speak to normal people and to put their issues forward in a way that makes readers realize that, you know, that they have concerns and that they, they love and they laugh and, you know, all of these, all of these types of things. So... Americans remain uh, generally suspicious of, of the Middle East and the media <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and this kind of perception towards, towards bias. And, and I'd like to read just a, a short graph from, from, a, uh, article, from an article that, that touched on both subjects uh, that appeared in the New Republic by uh, Tom Peter. Um, you know, it was shared some 11,000 times on, on Facebook and 2,500 times on Twitter. And yes, that is the bar by which things are, are judged for their quality. Um, <laughs> but but here is, here is uh, the uh, direct, direct quote here, and then I'd be interested in any, any thoughts, uh, agree mm-hmm. or, or, or disagree. Um, so here we are starting. Never before have Americans disliked journalists as much as they do now. Political coverage, which tends to be contentious and also to influence, to most, influence perceptions of the press in general, thanks to its prominence, remains relentlessly even-handed um, even as a meta-analysis of decades of presidential campaign reporting by the University of Connecticut professor David D'Alessio has showed, yet readers believe the opposite. In a 2011 Pew Research Center survey, two-thirds of respondents said that news stories are often inaccurate. About a third said that the news media is, quote, not professional. 42% described the news media as immoral. Only 38% judged the profession as moral. And he goes on, just one more uh, few, few sentences here. Working overseas, this is quoting again, I rarely thought about how people process the news. Uh, to be certain, I never imagined people clamoring for foreign reporting. I assumed most people were indifferent, but I took comfort in knowing that my profession provided a, a public daily record uh, available if or when a person decided to devote time to an issue. Um, more than anything, I liked working as a journalist because I loved the day-to-day hustle. A possible higher purpose was what convinced me it was worth it when bad things happened, like getting caught up in an airstrike or having a roadside bomb explode under the truck in front of me. Um, do you 
do you he essentially goes on to say it's very hard to be a, a foreign correspondent and report um, he's talking about presidential politics there but and then goes on to talk about Middle East reporting do you run into this in your work or do you have any any thoughts about that is it um, you know how, how does that affect your work essentially this this American suspicion of both the Middle East that, that you said you yeah know, oh, everybody's crazy and and nothing will ever change and also the media right yeah it's it's pretty tricky and I I really agree with Tom on the point that you know and this is kind of what has kept me going as well that that you know you take comfort um, in knowing that there will be a record of it and if people want to know about it then you know they'll go they'll go and find it and you're doing you're doing that service um, but absolutely we you know um, you realize that that yeah when you come home people people already have their you know preconceived notions about what the media is focusing on and what we're not focusing on and because you know they have access to um all of these different you know various websites on the internet not that they shouldn't but um the you know people will say things to me um both here and and at home um you know oh well the cia is behind all of this and so i you know why aren't you reporting that and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and so yeah it's it's extremely difficult um but luckily, you know, I don't come into contact with that too much. And we don't, you know, the political coverage, it doesn't have as much, I guess, um, there's not as much polarization, um, you know. And, and so I, I haven't really felt pressure or anything like that in, in foreign reporting because it's a bit removed um, from that sort of stuff. But But certainly, and, you know, Tom makes Tom makes very good points about um, you know getting caught up in an airstrike and then realizing that <laughs> no one even if people did read your story about it that they would already you know have their own ideas about what happened and who was behind it and, and all of these things so so those are Tom's ideas and and sort of uh, some people at least in the American public's ideas of, of about things what what are the guiding ideas that essentially you you have uh, that you use as as an anchor to your work or to kind of fall back on in tough times or, um, yeah, what, what are essentially the, the ideas that, that guide your work? Uh, you, you referenced one of them earlier, which was to, to give, a, you know, a, a voice to a population, you know, mm -hmm. to show that, that there are people over here too and they have concerns beyond, you know, mm -hmm. the headlines. But as a headline writer yourself, what, you know, what, what are the ideas? Well, what, you know, what keeps me, what keeps me going and, and, you know, that helps guide the coverage, I guess, is that this is an incredibly important time in this region, that things are being reshaped in a way that we won't truly comprehend, I don't think, for, you know, decades, decades to come. And to to be a part of that and to be able to speak to the people that are participating in it and that are, are, you know, being impacted by these changes and then being able to produce um, something that, you know, uh, explains that, explains what they're going through or, or whatever, I think is really remarkable. And I feel extremely lucky um, to be doing this. So, you know, as, as we, as we write the stories, I mean, I just, you know, I'd like to think that, we're giving, you know, um, we're describing to American readers what, 
how important this is historically and 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 why they should care and how you know how this will affect them and how our foreign policy interacts with you know what's happening now so so that's really kind of what what keeps me anchored and um again no idea if i'm uh successful in that endeavor of <laughs> explaining um explaining how important this all is but but it's truly yeah it's truly amazing i think so so you know you you're you're writing um stories if not not every day fairly regularly how do you um pick the either the places that you're writing about or the kinds of stories that you're covering is this is this kind of dictated uh from above or is it dictated by whatever is going on at the moment or do you get a bit more latitude to kind of um dig into something longer or or, or pick pick what you're doing a bit right it's a little it's a little bit of both so um as far as where i go outside of egypt that's normally dictated by you know the newspaper um especially since there's been such an insane amount of news um this summer so you know I went to Libya, I went to Iraq, and then I covered Afghanistan and that. So um, they basically say, you know, you're going here and um, good luck. But <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're required to to provide, you know, um, pretty regular, pretty regular coverage. Um, but that, you know, there's not a lot of. Um, uh, I guess they don't really pressure us to do this story or that story. You go there, you decide, you know, you start your reporting, you decide what looks good, and then you discuss it um, with your editors. And and there has been, you know, there have been times where um, you've been, you know, we can get space to, to do something a little bit longer. Um, I don't think I've ever in my, <laughs> in my entire writing career felt like I had enough time to really proper, you know, do, um, a story that really gave it, you know, the subject justice. Um, I would love to spend, yeah, I would love to spend, um, you know, months or something, you know, working on, working on something that where you could really tell a story. So, so that's always a challenge and that's not the fault, um, of the post or, or anything like that. But, um, and to some extent, I mean, maybe you're doing yourself a disservice in that, you know, you're, a um, uh, a reporter in the sense that you're not writing, you know, one story every three months and then it's you know 10,000 words or whatever you're writing very regularly and so it's the body of work which and you get that sense if you as as I did spend like a few days reading like everything all in succession you mm -hmm. you get that sense it, it's 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 all part of a kind of larger larger mm -hmm. body of things right right yeah on uh, on that exact topic um what do you think your your reporting accomplishes and that's not in a negative sense much much more in a positive sense like you know not what do you think it does any good but much more you know what what does this this corpus uh accomplish oh why why did you ask this question <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't know if it accomplishes anything to be honest um interesting does it have to right yeah uh yeah i i don't know um mm -hmm. you know the most, you know, sort of the most you, you get is that you get feedback from people mm -hmm. and people post things um, and then they continue to follow your work. And hopefully out of that, you know, maybe they're a little bit more um, informed about, you know, this far off place or or whatever. But um, 
you know, I, I can't say for certain that it accomplishes anything. Um, mm -hmm. so I know that sounds sort of sad, but <laughs> I think, I think in general, I can't, you know, that's something that. Do, do you struggle with this or, or do your friends, I mean, you know, the, the media world and, in, in, in particularly overseas, you know, you guys all know each other. Is this kind of a, a topic of conversation? Does it come up periodically or, or is it just kind of accepted as, you know, we're not quite sure and we can't quantify it? I think that, I think that, yeah, people, you know my colleagues and, and, and peers over here, they do think, yeah, okay, we don't, you know, we don't really know. Um, but they certainly, especially after, you know, the past few years where everything's ha everything has been, you know, really crazy and people have been killed. Our colleagues have been killed. People are starting to question whether or not it's worth it. Um, certainly. And I, really? yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of the, the Tom Peter, uh, you know, approach. I mean, it clearly hit a nerve with with just how much attention it got. Uh, you know, there there are more than a few people thinking along those lines. You're, you're saying of just like what 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 exactly? You know, particularly when you're in harm's way, why am I doing this? Yeah, absolutely. And it affect you know it has an effect on on your well being, your mental well being, your health, sure. um, your physical health. This you know the level of stress that comes with all of this certainly takes a toll on people personally, and they you know. Um, people have, you know, have decided or in the process of deciding, um, to leave, you know, to leave the region. Um, and, and that might not, you know, it, it could be for a couple of reasons. It might not necessarily be because they think that it's not worth it, that no one will ever, you know, nothing will ever change, but, sure, sure. but yeah, it, I mean, these past few years have been really intense. And I think that, um, the combination of not knowing whether or not your work was reaching people and the level of stress that comes with it are contributing to, you know, um, a journalist starting to, to question their, right. their role. I kind of feel that's a, that's a, it's, it's, it's a generational thing as well, where, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you are, um, uh, you know, maybe uh, th th there's kind of a, a younger group of people who, um, essentially have just come out of school or, you know, haven't been working for a long time. And they, they they would probably have a very different perspective. They would have the sense, well, you know, it's great. We've got all of this um, access to, you know, putting stuff online. We can have, you know, our own blog. Maybe we're not working for anyone, but, you know, you can get your stuff out there very easily. You can take photographs. You can put them up on your website. You can travel anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to, to get to places. So, you know, if from from that perspective they might have a much more positive outlook on things or the the young freelance perspective you're yeah. saying yeah 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 i think so um but i've also seen you know young freelancers burn out pretty quickly in the past couple of years um because they don't have it you know there's not there's not infrastructure um mm -hmm. and and they really you know they really um they work hard for, for very little money and they have no support. And so, so yeah, you know, you get these, these waves of, of young freelancers that come in, um, myself included when I started that we're very excited about everything. And then, you know, then you start to realize that, wow, this is really difficult and it's really taking a toll. And, you know, so. Um, I, I have one last question on on this on this front. Uh, sure. You know, you essentially mean some, some people are, are questioning it. Um, you know the the sense of is it worth it all these kinds of things it, it seems like 
what could happen, and please correct me if I'm wrong, really, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, sort of in- information or the quality of information from, from the Middle East you know, may actually be going down or at least, you know, subject to or potentially, you know, uh, decreasing as it seems to me the, the need for quality information has as you say, that the last few years have witnessed an astonishing number of things. Mm-hmm. Um, the need for more information, paradoxically, rather rather than just a deluge, but but the need for high quality information to understand what what's happening over there uh, seems to me to to have never been higher. Uh, yeah, is, is that a, a concern? Absolutely, I think that I, I completely agree that that at this time, you know definitely need more quality information more more strong um reporting and but as long as you know newspapers and and news agencies continue to you know um go down and cut back and and all of this and less right. is being invested in foreign reporting then then that's just the reality of the situation it's really it's right. really unfortunate um because yeah it's an immensely important time so, so that is a concern, mm-hmm. and I think that we will witness that, and maybe at some point, someone will realize that um, they need foreign reporting, and that people need to understand what's going on in the world. Not sure when that. <laughs> not sure when that will happen. Yeah, but. Maybe, Aaron, <laughs> if you say so. I, I don't know. I'm putting up the walls here in Boston. And I don't really care anymore. I think these things probably go in cycles as well, and you know, whether yeah. you saw, you know, I guess we see the same thing in Afghanistan, where. You know, uh, January first, twenty fifteen. There'll be no one left in Afghanistan, and I don't know where there will be. Maybe there will be in Iraq. And you know, sad to say, but I kind of feel we'll all be back there ten years later, and everyone will be like, "Wow, where did this stuff come from?" Uh, Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, nobody saw it coming. Right. Um, You know, I never see anything coming. (laughs) For the record, I don't either. which is why I was in Afghanistan for the Arab Spring. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, I completely agree with you on that on that point. That if you don't have people, you know, on the ground in between these, you know, um, bursts of news, whether it has to do with U.S. troops being there or whatever, then um, then yeah, you're gonna you're not gonna have the information. You're gonna get caught by surprise. You're gonna you know, end up being in another war with a country that you don't understand and, and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So to speak a bit more practically, um, who, um, you know, uh, you can you can take this in as wide or as um, narrow a kind of perspective as uh, as you'd like. But who who are the people that you consistently uh, read or find interesting, whether this is fellow journalists or people on Twitter or publications or mm-hmm. books or podcasts or, or, or whatever it is? What, what, what kinds of information are you, are you um, taking the time on a, very, on a kind of regular basis to expose yourself to to understand um, what's going on around you, aside from, you know, interviewing people and so on? Right. So I guess for, you know, for stories and and for sort of everyday or even feature reporting, um, I'm constantly consuming local local media, whether it's in Egypt, Libya or or wherever. And that can be, you know, um, in English or or sometimes in Arabic. And I think that's a really important source of information Um you know, local local journalists and local media in these countries really have you know their their eyes on the ground, and sometimes you know sometimes they're 
they can be partisan or there's some credibility issues, but I think that's really important. Um, I also, obviously, I'm an avid uh, Twitter user and follow, you know, follow a lot of people on Twitter and and whether that's for, you know, um, links to news or or people who are, you know, on the ground describing things or analysis, you know, it can be all of those things. Um, I also, one of my main, you know, um, uh, my primary sources of, I guess, analysis and, and news in the Middle East is the Arabist blog. Yep. Yeah. So um, they're sort of a must read for me, whether it's on Egypt or, or elsewhere in the Middle East or North Africa. Um, definitely constantly following them. There is a local um, online publication in Egypt called Mada Mast, which is um, a really smart group of journalists, probably I would say the best in the country, um, and they're independent and they've come together and they produce some really good stuff. Um, and then I guess, you know, from from a academic perspective, um, I like to follow... I'm not. I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, Omar Ashour with the Brookings Institution, who writes some really interesting stuff on Islamist movements in the region. Um, he also focuses on Egypt from time to time. So, so yeah, I don't. You know, I get stuff from all over the place, I guess. But <laughs> anyway, any any um, uh, of those kind of um, uh, local local journalists and so on. Any anyone else kind of come to mind um, that that people should be uh, paying attention to or following or um, in terms of in terms of local journalists. Yeah, but I mean, particularly in Egypt. Yeah, sure. So um, you know, there's tons. Oh man, there's tons in Egypt. <laughs> there's so many. Um, <laughs> um, there are a lot of you know there are a lot of people who work at. The Daily News Egypt, there's someone called um, Basil El-Dab on Twitter who is is brilliant and writes really good stuff. Um, I would also recommend following uh, Karim Shaheen, who's Egyptian but works in Lebanon for the Daily Star. Um, yeah, I guess I guess those two would be okay. Would be yeah, my recommendations of who to follow, but. Yeah, so I mean, you're 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 kind of taking all of that stuff in, as well as you know, obviously your uh, your um, daily kind of wanderings around. Um, if if you're if you're going to mm -hmm. to to somewhere new or that 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 you haven't uh, that you haven't been to, uh, are you essentially doing the same same kind of things um, in terms of uh, just uh, seeing seeing who's interesting? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, before, before I go somewhere, of course, I just, you know, read as much as I can about, um, about the country. And that can include, you know, going on Twitter and finding people who, who are tweeting from there or reading, you know, policy papers and, and the local media and just kind of trying to put it all together. Um, normally, I'll make, you know, a folder on, on my desktop and sort of dump all the information that I can about a particular place um, into that folder. And then, but what, you know, what I find is that, you know, absolutely you must do prep for, for reporting in a country, but that if you go there thinking that you'll do these certain stories and then, you know, don't end up, and then you end up doing those stories, but, but nothing else, then you're sort of, you're missing the point, you know? Yes. 
essentially a, a kind of pre-written cookie cookie cutter kind of things that you <laughs> researched before you got exactly, there. Exactly, kind of exactly. Um, I mean, there have been so many times where, yeah, you, you read as much as you can and then you get there and you realize that, not that all of it's wrong, but that that's not necessarily what you should be focusing on or that's not the story and, and that, um, you know, you'll often find you'll often find much more interesting things by by talking to people and by listening um to people in those in those countries so so yeah i would say you know read as much as you can but don't um don't expect to be you know to find those exact points that that you're finding on online or in these policy papers actually you know in the country that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, what what you just uh, described essentially sums up my my college um, versus mm. post college mm-hmm. uh, life. It was essentially you know you read everything, you you devour it, you study Arabic, you do everything you can, um, and then someone comes along and is like, "You're an IR major, shouldn't you be like going somewhere?" <laughs> <laughs> and you get on a plane to the Middle East, and you all of a sudden you discover. For me, in in 2007, it was um, the plane ride from uh, the airport to my hotel. Um, mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I realized I needed to do a massive reexamination of pretty much everything I knew <laughs> um, just off of that. And and yeah, so I completely agree uh, with your point about devouring it all. Did you did you talk to the did you interview the taxi driver and get in a? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I found was that journalists and taxi drivers go way back. <laughs> I discovered uh, the secret lives of taxi drivers as sources of information for major kind of like three letter acronym. <laughs> Uh, newspaper nice. so, yeah that was great that and uh the guy who sold me uh minoshi jebna he was uh oh, nice. you know that was my source you know it was great nice <laughs> you know we, we we started talking about how essentially you're trying to talk about people and mm. how um uh, that they're not you know this stuff doesn't come out of nowhere mm-hmm. isis is not just suddenly this like crazy like force which you know we we, we had you know everything has a context everything has mm-hmm. a history um uh, a lot of people um uh particularly people in think tanks spend a lot of time kind of writing about the often very complex backgrounds to these issues mm-hmm. how do you um how do you fit this into to your reporting? Is that even possible? Is that even something which which reporting should be doing, or should you just kind of be nodding your head at, at, at you know at this stuff, or uh, or? Yeah. No, no, I think it's I think it's essential, um, and I'm, I'm you know I'm very glad that they do it, um, and I often meet with you know um, analysts that come in and and sort of say, oh well, you're reporting, you know. Um, helps us research our, you know, what we're doing, um, about the region. So, so no, I think it's great. And I think, you know, you can't always include, um, some of those more, you know, uh, academic or, or sort of esoteric ideas in, in your, um, in your stories, your, your editor will just be like, what the hell is this? You know, nobody's going to understand it. No. (laughs) Um, but, um, (laughs) But no, I think it's I think it's really important, and I think it it gives you sort of a background and an understanding, whether it's um, you know whether it's wrong or right, but you know what people what people are thinking, what people are writing about about the region and where some of this stuff um, uh, this stuff comes from. So mm-hmm. no, I'm glad I'm glad they exist, even if you know we criticize them all the time. <laughs>
So to, to stay true to our, our loyal listener base, um, you know, the name of the show is, is Sources and Methods. Um, we've, mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about the sources of your information, and I'd like to just talk briefly about, about the methods so that everybody keeps listening to this show. Um, you know, Alex and I are under enormous mm-hmm. pressure to make this show uh, <laughs> relevant and exciting. Um, what do you have? Could you talk a little bit about your, your process uh, or essentially your, your methods, uh, you know, to, to go back in an episode? You know, our previous guest was Anand Gopal, and, and he talked essentially about how, you know, mm-hmm. he reads information on Twitter and that. And then, and so we've talked a bit about that. But then he moves on to the next step of kind of storage and and archiving and and tagging it all mm-hmm. and, and sort of keeping it relevant, keeping it nearby, and and how to, mm-hmm. how he kind of manages this information. I was wondering if you could, if you you know, if you have any tips and tricks for for managing kind of the the deluge of information that that's coming in. Uh, how, how do you keep it on top of it all? Yeah, it's 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 not easy, but I have a lot of folders on my computer that <laughs> are arranged. <laughs> I mean, first they're they're arranged by country. Okay. And then and then by subject, whether it's a story or just some sort of general issue that's taking place um in the country and then I will put um everything uh, I will put everything in there and I'll, I'll separate it with interviews, color, description, news articles, tweets, uh, photos, whatever. And that will all go into that, you know, folder that um, is that particular subject. And I never delete them. Mm-hmm. I I back them up and I back them up on my Google Drive so I can, cons- you know, I can go back. When I went when I went back to Afghanistan this year, um, you know, I had left in 2011 Um and so it had been a while. So I went back. Right. I went back through um, my Afghanistan interviews folder and just, you know, read through all the transcripts and what you know what I had done and who said what and you know what kind of trends I saw in in the interviews that I was doing. And so that was that was really helpful. Um, so so in addition to that, in addition to you know separating everything by by country and by subject, I have sort of a uh, a background research folder where I, I put a lot of, um, you know, right now I have like, <laughs> I have a, um, you know, an English language draft of the Egyptian constitution, a breakdown of, um, uh, population in Afghanistan from the central statistics office and, um, you know, stuff like, stuff like that, that's sort of general and that I would like to go over just to like refresh my, my memory on certain things. So, so that's one, you know, that's one aspect of it. I also, um, whether I'm, whether I'm researching for a story or, or just reading generally about the region or something that I think is interesting, I use Instapaper a lot. Um, I was going to ask you about any apps that, that you use. So yeah. yeah, Instapaper is, is excellent. So anytime, you know, I'm, reading something in the in my browser or you know even from someone's tweet i just click you know send to instapaper and then at the end of the day i get out my my ipad and load it and it's all there and it's all wonderful and in really clean format and it's great um and then if if i need to save that you know if i want to save that in my folders and i'll go about you know um i'll go about doing that um and I'll also, you know, when I when I type up my notes and in interviews, I will also send those to my iPad so I can open them um, and and read them as I write or or whatever. 
Yeah, the thing I, I loathe about Instant Paper is how easy it makes it to uh, share. I mean, uh, I, must, <laughs> I must get emails, I don't know how many, from, from Alex each week being like, here's yet another cool thing I read. And, I, and at the bottom, <laughs> it always says via Insta Paper, and I just want to throw my laptop out the window. <laughs> Nobody can read as much as Alex does. You can't. I'm trying yeah. to keep up, but I, w- I will admit. And I very rarely admit my, my fault, um, but uh, it, it is difficult. I'll, I'll say that. I, I feel there are two, two kinds of people in the world. People who read articles the moment they see them online. So, you know, they're scrolling through Twitter and they're like, ah, oh, this sounds interesting. They'll mm-hmm. click it and then they'll read it from start to finish. And then there's the kind yeah. of people who will just right click it and say, send it yeah. to my Instapaper queue. And I, I, I have this really big problem where... Yeah, yeah, I have <laughs> far more stuff coming in than that I'm unnecessarily clearing, um, uh, clearing all the time, and you know, yeah, I, I offload right. it onto to 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 other people as well. Well, Alex, you must you must know that um, whenever I have time to read a book, um, and it you know I do have some time <laughs> once in a while, but I go to your Goodreads profile and I just scroll through, you know everything that you've marked as as worth reading um about afghanistan or the middle east or iran or whatever and i just put them on my kindle or my amazon wish list and then so you're my sole source of <laughs> i feel i feel very honored. no I, I i feel that we should more people should be should be on goodreads i, I, I yeah. yeah goodreads is, is one of the the they should. things that that i enjoy i particularly enjoy yeah seeing seeing what other people are reading and uh, one kind of not necessarily uh, related um, uh, thing, you have a very interesting uh, Instagram feed. And I'm probably wrong in uh, suggesting that you were the first person to do what you what you do on that. But you, you uh, I can't remember what year it was. When, when did you get back to Cairo? 2009? Two th- um, from Afghanistan? Yeah. 2011. 2011 um yeah. you, you kind of started um doing all of these um kind of insta cairo um photos mm-hmm. and I, mm-hmm. I yeah it's probably just me but i, I kind of feel you you were one of the fr- first people uh doing this and i uh, hate is too strong a word but i i just, <laughs> i i just, oh where's this going <laughs> no i i just i dislike uh cairo quite strongly but your photos have made me reconsider um, Cairo. It's probably one of these, you know, when you're actually there, you'll, you'll, I would just regret it. Um, yeah. But uh, um, I regret it every day. How 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 are you just t- taking taking and you know anyone listening? I strongly recommend you follow Erin's Instagram feed for interesting things coming out of the places where. Uh, where she's writing and reporting from. But how, how are you choosing what you're taking photos of? Or do you have any interesting stories relating to that? I mean, I don't know. It just kind of, um, you know, I see something and I, you know, whether it's good light or a nice scene or whatever, I just, you know, I just snap it. And it's basically just stuff that I see every day. And, you know, yes, being, you know, Cairo is a... <laughs> soul-crushing place to live. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> oh, no. I've actually never been. Yeah, it's something everyone has to experience, but don't stay too long. Um, 
<laughs> but it keeps it keeps me sort of sane and appreciative of you know the fact that there is beauty here and it keeps me alert and um so and, and Cairo you know as as crazy as it is and as you know ugly as it is architecturally and and otherwise and it's polluted there are so many things here it's an incredible city it's you know 15 million or or more people so there there's always you know there's always things right. going on there's always really colorful scenes that are happening um and i think that uh, and this goes along with you know what i said earlier about trying to present um this region as a place that has people in it who live their lives and and who do ordinary things and i think that um, Instagram has sort of given me a way to um, present these everyday scenes that that aren't necessarily tied to a particular story. So they don't need to be of a certain subject or they don't need to be edited. Um, it's just, you know, what what I see every day, um, whether I'm working or not. Um, and so so, yeah, it's been it's been really great um, and, and I really enjoy it. Um, so. Um, moving towards the the, the end, uh, did you have a chance to um, uh, think of a book that uh, excites you or that you would uh, encourage other people to take a look at? Sure. Are we talking about, you know, recent books or, or can it be something? Can, can anything you want. What, 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 yeah, just, just a, a kind of a, a, a pick of, um, yeah, a pick of something that, that, that you think people should, uh, should uh, should take a look at i think that um people should read drinking the sea at gaza by amira Haas. um it it's a few years old um she lived she's an israeli journalist that lived in gaza during the 1990s um after the oslo accords were signed and she really does a wonderful job of um of portraying you know the people of gaza um as just that as people who um, love to go to the sea and and you know the euphoria they get when the curfew is lifted and and it's just a really nice account of um, of of Gaza and what and sort of also what went wrong during the 1990s after the peace accords uh, were signed so I would really um, recommend that for anyone who's interested in in that part of the world for sure it's people people often say about that book that you know it's it's great because you know it humanizes people in Gaza and uh I mean it's kind of sad that um quite often when you have something which is is just you know goes beyond stereotypes people say ah oh, it, it humanizes them um uh, as if mm -hmm. you know people I I don't know um you, yeah yeah oh, I, it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a great book Right. Yeah, I think there's such a level of demonization, though, that goes on um, in, you know, yeah, uh, in the Middle East and, and with that, you know, the population of Gaza in particular, that it's it's important to have that, I guess. Matt, did you have anything you wanted to um, your your pick for the week? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm reading uh, two books this week, actually. Uh, the first is Dark Continent. Europe's uh, 20th Century by Mark Mazower. Uh, very interesting so far. Um, Europe was a very interesting place <laughs> uh, 100 years ago. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess we're in the 
Huh, the 100 years since uh, World War One. Um, yeah, so this is essentially addressing the, the root causes of that. And then the second one, a bit more timely, is um, Excellent Sheep, the Miseducation of the American Elite in the Way to a Meaningful Life by uh, William Dershowitz. Um, th- this book's interesting because it's written by a Yale professor um, who essentially does not like the system that, that Yale and, and Harvard, as he writes, um, preside over. So I'm about halfway through that. And... Uh, that's interesting because it's it's just a very thorough uh, critique. Definitely has uh, a few things I, I would say go too far or or whatever. But essentially questioning uh, are are America's elite schools preparing students for uh, a real and and meaningful life? And and I should say that I, I get these recommendations uh, from the uh, the Farnham Street blog authored by uh, Shane Parrish. I'm a slave to anything uh, he recommends. Sometimes I've read it before, but but often um, that that's where I get uh, a good number, at least, of my book recommendations beyond uh, friends or trying to keep up with with Alex. Erin, did you have a think of a film? Yeah, actually, I think uh, it's it's been one of my um, favorite films for for a while, and I think that it's it's important given um, recent events in Iraq, and it's. It's a documentary called Iraq in Fragments. Oh, wonderful. By film. James Longley. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I know. I, I literally, oh, Matt. people shaking their heads gotta, right now. You got to get on so it. I'm going <laughs> to put that on the list. <laughs> no, it's, it's really beautifully shot um, immediately after the U.S. invasion, but um, it just focuses on, um, you know, Iraqis and and it follows a Sunni a Sunni boy in a Baghdad neighborhood, and then the Shia movements in the south and um, a family of of Kurdish farmers in the north. And there's no narration, so it just you know, it's just them sort of giving their views about the future of the country and where things are headed. Um, and I think it's it would be a good idea for people to to watch that now um, as this all unfolds in Iraq again. Yeah, I mean, and that absolutely goes to to what you were saying, Aaron, about, you know, uh, this being a place of people. And, you know, it's it's a uh, excellent because um, the um, the guy who made it uh, didn't feel the need to, you know, insert himself into the film and make it all about him being in a dangerous place. And, you know, I heard interviews with him and, you know, I I know that, um, you know, he spent a crazy amount of time filming that and putting it together and just essentially spending time with um, the the various uh, characters in the film. And when you see it, you'll see just how long it must have taken to get these people to, He's following these these people through their lives, but you know they're kind of going about it naturally. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he spent uh, two or three years essentially following these people around. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's 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 an amazing uh, amazing kind of in, a window into that period of time. And uh, as, as just as a kind of ca- character mm-hmm. study, absolutely. What are you up to, Alex? My pick for the week is uh, something which has nothing to do with uh, politics or history or Middle East. Um, I've been having some uh, back and shoulder pain um, over the past few weeks. And I I kind of used to be a runner or I have been a runner my whole life. Um, but um, uh, that kind of became, uh, started feeling uh, boring to me. And I 
just can't remember exactly how I came across them. Um, but there is a, a group of people called Gold Medal Bodies online, and I'll put a link. It's just goldmedalbodies.com. Um, and they're essentially um, a team of three, three plus people uh, writing about um, uh, kind of fitness, but through a broadly kind of gymnastics lens. Um, and I recently started. Um, going to a gymnastics club here in Holland is always something I wanted to do. Um, I'm the most <laughs> inflexible person in the world. Uh, but you know, <laughs> it's been amazing these past few weeks to, uh, you know, I did my, the first handstand I've ever done in, I don't know, 22, 23 years Congratulations. Um, to go on kind of rings and uneven bars and all sorts oh of things. Oh my God. And um, these, these people at gold medal bodies, they have kind of, uh, courses and uh, free videos and blog posts and things like that which are all um you know different ways to keep moving and keep flexible which are outside the you know do weights at the gym or go for a run kind of thing and i find the stuff that they do really fun and um definitely uh, check them out if you're bored with sports and working out as i kind of <laughs> It's so random. <laughs> uh, Aaron, our, our last, uh, we're getting into the final point here. Um, do you have a song that you are listening to or would recommend? Or what, what are you listening to these days, music-wise? So I just sort of rediscovered sort of an old, an older album um, that I had had liked previously. So it's not something new. But um, it's Soul Shine by DJ Cam. I don't know if... Either of you are familiar with that, um, but it's kind of like mellow, mellow hip hop with a little bit of jazz and some vocals, and um, it's quite nice. Um, so yeah, nothing, nothing groundbreaking, but <laughs> um, yeah, something that I just re rediscovered on my laptop. But, I will find that and yeah. put that put that into show notes. Um, the final question. Awesome because uh, we've uh, taken a lot of your time and uh, at a very late hour in the night. Um, uh, if you were, if you know, I, I'm, I'm the, the um, uh, magic bestower of uh, an unlimited budget, what project would you go and do with that unlimited budget? And let's say unlimited time as well. This might sound not very creative and sort of predictable for me, but... I would go and live uh, in Gaza again for several years and research and write a book. Matt, Matt, Matt is probably going to laugh to himself because he'll see in the notes that we have uh, shared between us um, <laughs> my note, which says the project that I would love to see you do is write a book on Gaza. It's actually true. Alex and I are, are, are working through a document right now, and, and it literally, the project I'd love to see her do is a book on Gaza. It's It's... <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, it, it it comes through so clearly in in the reporting uh, that this is a place that you feel some kind of affinity with, and uh, you know uh, whether it's some kind of I don't know cultural history, oral history, mix of all of these kinds mm -hmm. of things. You know, something longer where you um, yeah. yeah, we're able to kind of get 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 your hands a bit uh, um, kind of dirty on that. Uh, yeah, maybe we have to start, you know, a, a, a oh. Kickstarter to like you know, put you on this journey <laughs> to, to 
bring on the funds. <laughs> well, Aaron, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to come on. We, we really appreciate it. No, thank you. For our listeners, this recording and more information about the tools discussed in it is all available at our website one last time at sourcesandmethods.com. It is also now available on iTunes and available via RSS feed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>